are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. I'm not going to lie, it feels amazing to say that again, as I took a little bit of a break in between seasons four and five, and in addition to recovering from COVID, but really, I've been recording episodes like crazy, and I cannot wait for you to see what is in store for this coming season. It's been such a whirlwind of a year already. For me personally, as some of you may know, I started a new role this year and it's been really fulfilling. I've been thrilled to dive 100% into my day-to-day and feel so inspired by the innovation happening in my space, in my product, and in the industry, which just further reminds me of the importance of spreading the message around the possibilities of an environment that is conducive to innovation. I also have to share that there are so many women leaders around me who are unafraid to speak out about things like work-life balance, the importance of diversity, psychological safety, and it has really made me rethink my own role as a teammate and as a manager and a leader in my space. It is not enough to just be a woman in the workplace. You have to take others along for the ride. You have to make the people and especially the other women feel good. And I genuinely feel so lucky to have learned these lessons from my colleagues and in my workplace. And of course, the WIN community of amazing women's leaders. Today's guest embodies resilience and empathy as a leader. Cassidy Fine describes herself as a servant product leader, and our discussion about video and product and innovation really shows that she lives up to the hype. With over 10 years of B2B, SaaS, and enterprise product experience, Cassidy brings a balanced vision and perspective around innovation and its definitions and reframes some of the more traditional viewpoints that we've seen on this podcast. I learned so much from chatting with her, and then when I went back to edit the podcast, I picked up on even more additional nuances about Cassidy and her story and the subject matter which we discussed. I highly recommend you listen to this one with a pen and paper or your iPhone notes because it's really a good one if I say so myself. Before I hand it over to Cassidy, I just wanted to thank so many of you that reached out to either wish me a speedy COVID recovery or just to say that you missed the win-win podcast in the last month. It's meant a lot and one of the biggest reasons I am close to releasing 100 episodes since launching in 2020 is your positive reinforcement to keep on going. Enjoy today's conversation, and as always, please feel free to slide into my DMs to talk more about all things innovation, leadership, careers, and gender. Hi, Cassidy. Welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. There are so many questions that I'm curious about, and we usually start this podcast talking about somebody's career trajectory. What I find really, really interesting about yours is that so many people take years to get into product management and into innovation practices, and that's always a topic of conversation. But for you, you were a content specialist just for a year before you were able to break into product management. So tell me a little bit about that and and how that change took place, especially since I know you did your undergrad in radio, television, and film. Yeah. So I feel like it's kind of a joke at this point with product people that no one really, you know, studied product in school and kind of goes right into product. It's really this 
kind of haphazard you know, path to product. And while I was lucky enough to kind of discover early on that product hits that sweet spot for me of things I'm good at and things that I actually enjoy doing, it did take a little bit. As you mentioned, I studied uh, RTVF at Northwestern. I uh, really thought I was going to go into the film industry and was very excited about it. I actually interned at AMC back when Mad Men and Breaking Bad was on the air. So it was really just peak television, really exciting. Seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I graduated and realized that the reality wasn't as romantic as I thought it would be. It was a lot of fetching coffee, answering phone calls, sending things out in the mail um, before I would, you know, really have any sort of power or ability to sort of create change or create anything of from myself. So at the time it was New York in 2011. So a lot of startups in the, what was deemed Silicon Alley area. So kind of, you know, that flat iron sort of part of Broadway, um, we're getting series A, series B, series C's. And I actually ended up interviewing with a friend who also graduated school, was supposed to be a developer at a very large uh, development firm, like thousands and thousands of people. Also realized day one that that was just not his speed. So (laughs) between the two of us, we're looking for a job and ended up joining my first company, NewsCred, which is now called Welcome, which is actually just recently acquired by Optimizely. And as employee number seven, it was very classic describe it almost as sort of a rotational program where really anything that needed to be done, you just needed to do it. And that included a little bit of sales, a little bit of operations, a little bit of HR, a little bit of product, uh, a little bit of engineering, and was lucky enough to figure out early on, you know, first of all, what is this kind of product management thing? What does that actually mean? What does that translate to day to day? Um, and actually being able to you know practice it before really pivoting into that that role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To your point earlier about you know nobody actually studies product management. Nobody studies mm-hmm. innovation either, right? As as a discipline, and so a lot of the times it's about being in the right place and at the right time, but also being able to really communicate that you've already been doing the job. You've just been doing it in a different way. But really considering, you know, the industry that you're in, especially as a lot of the listeners of this podcast are already, you know, deep in their jobs and looking for growth and that continuous growth. I know that you were in the media space for a while and, you know, Succession, the HBO show has really pushed this notion of media dying and that entire narrative. Um, And then you transition into B2B SaaS and video, which is an incredibly bustling industry. And so when you think about solving innovation problems, there's more than one way to do that. Are you interested in wartime or peacetime innovation and why? Oh, every experience I've had where, you know, we've pivoted as a business, we've broken into new addressable markets, we've discovered a really strong new product market fit has been born out of the stress of needing to do that um, mm-hmm, or failing mm-hmm. really quickly and then and then pivoting and finding that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I do feel like there is a little bit of that glory in the forcing function. Like what's the metaphor of, you know, coal turning coal into a diamond? Like I, this also just may be because I, I tend to function really excellently under pressure. Mm-hmm, um, it, mm-hmm. I think it is part of that necessity of, of surviving as a business where where really that best sort of innovation comes through and and 
helps, you know, save the business or, you know, breaks you into that new market or reaches new audiences in a way that you never could have before. Well, first of all, I love it. Uh, I think (laughs) your answer really, really taps into what you define as innovation. And there's something to be said about innovation as a core strategy versus innovation as like responding to failure or decline. If you take a company like Netflix, for example, you could argue they're in a wartime because of all the streaming wars. But at the same time, they have such incredible market reach that they have room to say, hey, like, why don't we try something completely different like games? And if it doesn't work out, it that's not going to be the thing that really breaks our business versus what you're speaking about is it sounds like you're really fueled by those life or death innovation problems. <laughs> That's a great example. Where I see it always being is wartime is I don't want to enter into an industry where there isn't competitors, right? I want mm. to enter into an industry where there's bad competitors, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to enter into an industry where there is no proven audience or even remotely comparable product or solution, even if that solution is incredibly manual or I compare this sometimes to pen and paper is a competitor. The spreadsheet is a competitor, um, mm-hmm. but I just want something um, to right. show that at least that that need is validated, that need is there. I totally get that. I guess it makes me wonder about your take on incremental innovation then. Do you believe that incremental innovation is innovation? Yes, yes, 100%. I mean, I think any level of of innovation is going to be relevant. And I think a lot of times, incremental innovation over time can be more effective than something that sort of falls out of the sky Mm -hmm. (laughs) and takes consumers or users or folks a lot of time to learn, to adjust to. Sometimes we don't always have that convenience of taking the time to learn to adjust to something or to have that innovation be incremental. Of course, something more topically I'm thinking of is you know COVID and all of the different changes we've learned mm-hmm. to live with and adjusted with. But I think if anything, incremental innovation, and this ties into my product kind of thoughts and practice as well, is going to be typically more effective because you have to do less work in moving to meet your audience or, or moving to meet your, your users. Something that you brought up is COVID. And I know that you have been in the video space for a while and you took on this director of product management role um, at Echo360, a video capability company too. And that happened February 2020, if my Mm -hmm. stocking serves me right. And I think (laughs) to to your point, not having luxury to adjust and to think about things uh, the way that you would when, when you're not innovating in a time of crisis. Take me through what was happening with you, your team, your point of view on innovation and the future of video in March 2020. Absolutely. So first, we were lucky as a business in that we were already very high functioning and fully remote. So we already had a strong team. We already had a strong mm-hmm. practice in place. Communication was was strong, was not an issue. And then COVID hit. and it became instantly clear which markets were already well prepared for this specific, of course, to the tech space. So this was, you know, a video SaaS product for specifically education and continuing education groups, whether this is, you know, large four-year universities across the globe, community colleges to kind of continuing education platforms for doctors, nurses, dentists that need to keep their licenses up to practice and have a certain amount of hours um, of CE credit they need per year. And 
what was interesting was how wildly different each of these different groups responses to the need was based off of how incremental the innovation was. So in, let's say, for example, the APAC market, that a lot of universities are already very well funded. They already have their own sort of research groups, internal IT groups. Um, we actually used to work with dedicated research groups that would just want a raw instantaneous data feed of, you know, student and instructor behavior that they could actively consume and actually spit out their own insights from, which is just wild um, in comparison <laughs> to the U.S. where, you know, unfortunately is a hunger mentality where funding is very few and far between. It is infrequent. It is not a guarantee. And there are constant cuts or rebalances of different departments and different resources accordingly. So getting our APAC customers up to speed was so interesting because they just took it as, okay, the few instructors we have that prefer to teach in person, we're pivoting to online. Can you basically scale to include X more percentage of users? And we're like, sure, no problem. On the US side, it was more questions like, how do I teach online? And that right. is a totally different problem to solve of how do you mm -hmm. get folks comfortable with these types of tools. Um, as you know, as someone that interviews people um, for your podcast regularly, it is very different to become comfortable with the tools and to become confident with the tools. And really teaching these folks and holding their hands and getting them online, in addition to making sure students had access to this content and ensuring also they were aware of the benefits and not afraid of the technology. I think it was really surprising to a lot of instructors, unfortunately, kind of how, what the expectations were from students. And a lot of them wanted to make sure the video was perfect and everything, eyes were dotted, T's were crossed, where students were just like, I just want to see what I missed. I don't care if the instructor's coughing. I don't care if right. someone's dog is barking in the background. I just want the, the content. So the learn. content, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, it was a really interesting time. I think like any online SaaS-based business or online video-based business at the time, um, you know, things things skyrocketed um, and then they normalized a bit, but it was it was really interesting just in terms of the differences, again, in, in that step function of what level of innovation was required, um, even just market to market. And when you consider this scenario, right, where you have two, not only two competing priorities, more like 250 competing priorities, but two <laughs> yeah. very different problems to solve, very different audiences, even methods of delivery, timing of delivery. As a product manager, to me, that sounds like a nightmare, but also the most exciting innovation challenge. So <laughs> how did you consider prioritization and problem solving at that time? Absolutely. Uh, prioritization is something I think and talk a lot about. I think it is one of the most exciting pieces of product management. You really are in the driver's seat at the end of the day, but it's of course also the scariest, right? At the end of the day, I think the adage is like, you share your glory with your team, but you take all the blame. Prioritizing at that time really was, you can't just kind of factor for one variable, right? You can't just factor for um, what is best for the business or what is best for the users, or, you know, you really have to balance a variety of different things. And of course, at that time, you also have this vital need of of access for, for students. We were far more responsible than we were before for students' access to educational content. And that is exciting and scary, right? It's people aren't losing their lives if they can't use your software, if your software goes down, but it is incredibly, incredibly important. So we, of course, didn't have a complete 
you know, formula for prioritization. I think prioritization, like a lot of PM is, is an art and a science. Um, but it was, you know, weighing that, that I think first and foremost, you know, idea of do no harm. Um, are we ensuring that all students have access to content in an in equitable way? So a big piece of my focus at that time was around um, rolling out tools around automated uh, transcription and closed captioning and making sure that we were improving our accessibility baseline so that students of all types would be able to access the content that they need. A big other piece of it was, of course, scalability. So again, having, you know, going from you know, 10x to 2000x overnight, how do you grow and scale your systems and make sure that they are satisfactory in the way that they store and process data? Because of course, data privacy and security is a massive part of Super working important. with students. Yeah, yeah. And then I think once we were really kind of able to move move past a lot of that and check those boxes, which we did already, it was really just ensuring we did it scale. That's where you can really start to, I think, get into the sweet spot of innovation of okay, everyone is online. Everyone is online. What does that mean? What are tools we can offer that are inherently better online versus potentially things in person? So another interesting insight we found, which is hopefully relevant to a lot of the listeners of this podcast is we found that um, students who were either, you know, first of their family to go to school or were in the minority breakdown of that class. So for example, in STEM classes, typically women, we're far more likely to ask and answer questions in a asynchronous chat online than they were in person. Wow. And when you think about it, yeah. And when you think about it, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's, it can be a little scary to sit in a large lecture and, and raise your hand and wait for the sure. student, the professor or TA to call on you. I come from a background where my high school class was 56 people. So when I went to college, I had my first, you know, 2000 person lecture and I was like, Oh, when does the real class start? And they're like, what are you doing? This is about? it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. And it blew my mind. So I, I totally understood that. And being able to offer tools like that to break down those barriers and again ensure equitable access was both exciting to me and also just um, you know, great, great to see across the board. You know, our, one of our biggest goals as PMs there was to improve student outcomes, right? And so being able to create and manage a tool like that and see that direct effect is just really satisfying. And that's that's, I think, where we really got to at the, you know, near the heart of or near the tail end of COVID as well, and just kept growing from there. It's so fascinating. And I think that the other piece of it is, is when you consider that example as an experience, oftentimes, when we think digitizing something, I think mm -hmm. that an incremental example that's not innovation is saying, hey, how can we replicate an experience and copy paste it, right? When to your point, there's so much opportunity to actually increase the systems that are no longer serving us, or maybe serving me as Zoya Kozakov or you as Cassidy, but aren't serving somebody with a different background. Like it's funny you talk about, you know, not raising somebody, somebody not raising their hand. I've always been the person that raises my hand in every scenario. And so like, <laughs> maybe if I'm the only PM in the room thinking about that, then I won't see that as a problem. But that's why you really need diversity across the board. A hundred percent. And that's why I'm also very vocal about, I think early COVID, we saw a lot of those in innovations or quote unquote innovations were things like uh, we have that sort of stadium view or classroom view and things like Zoom and Microsoft mm -hmm, Teams. And it mm -hmm. just seems silly. Let's be real about the strengths and weaknesses of both of these different formats, right? I mean, it's going to sure. do certain things better and certain things worse. And, and that's okay. But yeah, totally agree. 
Switching into your role today, and you've been at Vimeo for about a year, you're still in the video space, but I can imagine you're solving an array of maybe a little bit of different problems, a little bit of the same problems. So just diving deeper into really your role as director of product for enterprise at Vimeo, what are some of the newer insights that you've learned and some of the considerations that have been different, even though that you're in a video role still? Mm, It's a great question. I think there are more similarities than differences, which is lucky for me. Mm -hmm. Um, The common thread I see across my career, at least in the past 10 years, is really just how to aid in communication. And in my time at Vimeo, it's been really interesting to see the commonalities around, I think I spoke earlier about this, but this, how do we empower video creators to feel like they are capturing and distributing and sharing their best selves or their ideal message that they're trying to capture in the media that they're creating? A lot of that is instilling confidence in the user that their media is being displayed, shared, distributed in a way that they're comfortable with, in a way that best presents them, best presents their content, but also giving those users the tools they need in order to make those tweaks sometimes. And I'm thinking about that a lot because one of my teams works with our AI and ML team very frequently. And, you know, we're having to make some of those decisions of what are aesthetic choices that users inherently want to be able to make. So things like, you know, modifying the display of of closed captioning, whether it's making the font bigger, changing the colors, et cetera, to things that are just inherently better. So let's say, for example, my my dog starts barking right now. She does that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, How can I kind of automatically pull that out of the background and show users that, you know, our platform is more valuable right off the bat, just by being able to kind of pull your videos into Vimeo. That's been really interesting to me in terms of that commonality. What I've been hearing throughout this podcast is you always talking about the user and the consumer. And you have been on the B2B SaaS side, which I think it's really interesting that you're always talking about the end user, which is, for example, in the education example, that's the students themselves or the teachers, perhaps. Throughout your career in this new role and in the past role, how do you approach doing that while still executing on your function on the enterprise side? Do you have multiple personas and how do you prioritize them? I guess really give me the the breakdown. Yeah, great question. Absolutely have multiple personas. So in the B2B space, it's tricky because you are serving effectively multiple users in different ways, right? You have this sort of gatekeeper function of the administrator or the purchaser, or the person who's making the purchasing decision that is effectively almost always different from the person that is more frequently using the platform. For our case, for enterprise, I would say it's a bit more evenly distributed, which is nice. Whereas previously for EdTech, it really was kind of this gatekeeper user. And then my my team focused more on you know the student user, but there were teams that focused on administrator users as well. Right. So really is keeping that balance of thinking through both and those needs. And ultimately, how do you serve both? I will say, you know, when you are at a SaaS business that is fairly early on, you need to figure out how you unlock that sort of first level of user, that that person making the purchasing decision that is ultimately setting up the software and ensuring that you are set up for success. Because if they aren't successful, then there's no way that they're going to onboard, you know, one, two, five million users that are also going to be using that platform. So really is, I think, serving both and making sure that you unlock those must-haves with that that primary persona before you kind of go forward. 
And there's definitely that educator mindset there too, right? Because that person Mm -hmm. that is using the tool not only has to be the expert on it, but they also then have to be the evangelist. So as you think about the elements of growth and really embedding innovation into your products, does the notion of having that user be the evangelist or the educator come to mind? Yes, 100%. And I think the way that I think about it is, you know, in product management, we we think a lot about the data that's available to us, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. So whether it's existing sort of user behaviors and performance or forward thinking, competitive research, analysis, um, in-depth interviews, et cetera. In the B2B model, at least this has been my experience, you will get useful signals, but short-term signals from mm. those buyers or those those administrators or those types of personas. And you will get really useful long-term signals from those ultimate end users, whether it's the students, whether it's the folks consuming or viewing your videos. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always important to keep that balance of both. Now, you know, again, if you're early on in, you know, your your product or your your market, it can be hard to not over-index on those short-term signals. Um, But in some ways, again, depending on your market, you kind of may need to a little bit so you can be the first to land and expand and then, you know, really start to focus on those longer term users. And again, continuing to iterate as you you get more information. But that's that's really how I've I've thought about it. In current times, I consider this notion of a crowded space and also commoditization. I work in the financial services space, and it seems like everybody wants to be a fintech player. I know I've had um, head of innovation uh, at Netflix for the animation group talk about, you know, the streaming wars, right? So I think video is in in a similar capacity where it can feel like a commoditized product that everyone needs, and there are so many different players. So as you consider wartime or peacetime or any sort of innovation, <laughs> how do you grapple with, you know, not being a commodity? It's a great question. I think it gets to the heart of what I felt in my time at Vimeo, where it really is about ensuring no matter what you do, you are solving a real problem for your users and ideally solving it in a way that is just inherently more valuable than anyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um I think we've been really lucky as a business to have a really positive feeling, you know, coming from our, our audience and users and folks that are familiar with Vimeo from the consumer perspective. And of course, we are very mindful of that and ensuring that anything we work on and put out on the enterprise side also satisfies that inherent expectation of value. And I do think it really just comes down to making sure that you are not building for the lowest common denominator, but you are truly building to solve real user problems and solving them delightfully. When you say lowest common denominator, it makes me think Mm. about balancing agility and an MVP versus actually that end state vision. So talk to me about how you balance those two things. Yeah, I think it all comes down to, I like to think of MVP. MVP has gotten a lot of flack as a Mm -hmm. (laughs) term recently, maybe unfairly, but I like to think of MVP as sort of smallest piece that still drives value that we can also Mm. learn from. And it's less about kind of having this, of course, you know, every PM is going to have this, you know, longer term vision or sort of idealized vision of where we should be or we could be. But 
it's about being flexible. I almost kind of see it in my mind as sort of multiple paths you can take. And some of them maybe will bring you into the jungle and some of them will bring you into the desert. And that's okay. Those are all great, beautiful, amazing places that are interesting and will take you even further. But it's about being flexible about, okay, we've released this kind of piece and actually the signals we're seeing are really strong towards this other path. Um, Let's leverage that. Let's go there. But again, I think making sure that you're driving value with everything you you release while not being married to some sort of long-term gargantuan build or vision that may not actually pan out or may not actually be useful to your users. Yeah, really, really interesting point of view. And I love that it does ultimately go back to value as a core principle and human-driven design, all, all the things that I know fellow innovation enthusiasts are passionate about. As we close it out, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question, and that is where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? So I'll start with industry. I I find that more interesting. I think other folks will too. It still feels like we're so early to video. And I know that's kind of a trope now uh, that we're so early to blank, but it it really does feel like we are. Our generation, I'm an elder millennial, um, has really kind of started to see the true kind of amount that video spreads. It it doesn't matter the platform. It it truly just matters what the content is. We've been seeing a lot of that, you know, with the war in Ukraine, with really anything recent. I think, you know, understanding it's not about the platform. It's just about how folks gain access and how folks can consume it. So I think short term, you know, of course, that's going to continue to to grow and expand. We're going to start to, you know, see these kind of lines bleed between, you know, I don't really care who's, who's hosting it. I just care how do I get access to it and what all those points of access translate to. I think as we start to go further down the timeline, there's so much more we could do with with video that we don't today. So really breaking down into its kind of component or elemental parts of if someone creates something, do they just need to share the audio? Do they just need to share the video? Do they just need to share the text? There's innumerable studies that have shown, uh, you know, most people don't listen to video with sound on, which of course has led to the this broader distribution or tools of almost every, you know, TikTok or Instagram now that you watch has kind of automated, um, you know, text associated with it. I think mm-hmm. tools like that are only going to increasingly become better and better. They already are getting a lot better, a lot faster, um, which is both exciting and scary. But we're going to start to see, I think, video as a default for communication or for really any platform. And I think longer term, it's less about the, the, the metaverse, I think, and just more about how do we break down the consumption of video outside of, of our current devices. Like, I think we will not be primarily consuming video through our phones in the future. Um, I do think we'll probably get closer to some sort of you know, HUD heads up display sort of situation with our devices. I think a lot about the sort of internet of things and of homes and before that, the sort of electrification of, of items in our homes. So how we went through that kind of cycle of like, yes, it is helpful to have our tea kettles be electric. Like, no, it's not helpful to have, you know, our spoons be electric, for example. How do we sort of make that same distinction with video and with how we interact with our sort of everyday objects? That's really, I guess, what I'm thinking about these days in terms of the industry. And for you? <laughs> for myself, a month from now, I'm actually going on my honeymoon, finally. Um, so that's where I'll be. I'll be not working for a little bit. 
we we got married right before COVID. So I'm very excited to finally have that. You know, again, further down the line, ultimately my goal is to continue to try to solve hard problems for real human beings. And as I continue in my career, my hope is that my kind of area of influence and ability to solve especially hard problems can continue to grow and expand. I've always had a passion for for storytelling and for communication, um, which is really where I think that started in, in undergrad and really went from there. I consider myself a generalist. I'm always excited about a lot of different industries and a lot of different innovations. And so I think wherever I am later down the line, I know I will be hopefully solving truly hard problems for, for real people. Amazing. I love that. Thank you so, so much for coming on this podcast and, and giving us all the insights about video and product and innovation. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure as well. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.